Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Hello, funerary cult members and other herstory historians. How is your 2021 going? I know it's already been a week, but hopefully it's been better than the shit show that was 2020. You know that dog that sits in the fire and is like, this is fine. That was 2020. (laughs) So 2021 is putting out fires and we hope to help with that. We didn't start the fire because it's always been burning, but we're here to put that shit out. (laughs) Or at least make you the dog that's like, this is fine. Yes, we will. Yes, we will stimulate your mind with deeds of women from history that you haven't heard of but should know and then you can share these with your friends and i'm kelly i'm emily and it's kind of like the ultimate cocktail trivia where it's like did you know about this woman i bet you didn't because our education woefully ignores women from history in the history books and like everything yeah, but there's this the bitchin' podcast with these beautifully gorgeous women <laughs> that are filling me in on these women I don't know about. You should go listen to it. It's called Whining and About if you, History. You like bad puns? Just buckle up because it is gonna get real, <laughs> real something. We don't know real what, but real something. <laughs> You know, that's just the fun of life. It's about figuring it out. It's gonna be real something, and you just. When you get to the end, you'll figure out what that something right, is. You'll be like, all right, <laughs> I feel this now. All right. So uh, kind of like we've talked about in the past of doing, we are finally instead, when we don't have a say their name, we are going to read one of our five-star reviews that we enjoy. Or just a review we enjoy because that one-star review, I think, is like Still one of hilarious. Me and Kelly's favorites ever. Yeah. <laughs> because I seriously, I don't know what this person was looking for and why they just thought they would find that in our podcast. But yes, this isn't a serious historical lecture. This is a drunk dive from two besties with breasties who are going to get shwasted yeah. and have some fun. Okay. Shwasted. Shwasted. So the review I'm going to be reading is from uh, Azula Moore 40. And it's titled, Love, Love, Love. And we love, love, love you too. Yes. I have to say, I am impressed. I love this podcast. It combines history and fun and some wisecracks, LOL. It's everything I'm about, LOL. Yes. I'm so glad I found this. Can't wait to binge it, LOL. I hope she's actually LOLing. Yeah, I hope this whole time she's just laughing. (laughs) Don't ever stop. Peace sign emoji. There's some other emojis that like turned into boxes because iTunes is garbage. Signed Lydia. Thank you, Lydia. We love you. We we, we love, love, love you too. We won't ever stop, Lydia. Don't worry. We can't. (laughs) Can't stop. Won't stop. We're committed. Woo! You're stuck with us. Hit our our second episode of 2021 and uh, we're still doing the social distance recording, so we're just kind of... I'm still jamming out to my mock cranberry cocktail and my mimosa saurus decanter. I got sugar-free strawberry lemonade. Ooh, that looks really good, actually. It is really good. You Here, wait. It. Pass it through the phone. Through the phone? <laughs> Have you seen those videos, though, where the, the special effects guy does those like crazy effects I where know, it's like he reaches so into cool. the computer and pulls shit out? That would oh, be nice. I want that superpower. Right. All right. Well, what should we cheers to today? Hmm. Lydia. Let's cheers to Lydia. 
cheers to Lydia. And guys, remember to leave us five-star reviews and we might cheers to you too. Cheers. I didn't even make that a was noise. It's a plastic bottle in a plastic cup. Yeah, I have a plastic decanter, decanter and my Alice Ball glass. So it was more of a thunk. Yeah, mine too. But it was still beautiful in spirit. Okay. Everything All we are do beautiful. is beautiful in spirit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm getting us started today. Yeah, let's let's get that grape rolling. Yeah. Call back. <laughs> oh my oh, god. So I feel like I have kind of a thing for Japanese women and like the stories of the warriors and all that. And so I am going back to my roots. And today I'm covering Chiyome Mochizuki. I I know in Japan, they usually say the last name first and then the first name. Just for the ease of our listeners, I'm doing first name, last name. And so I'm going to be referring to her by her first name, Chiyome. So all the way back in episode Seven. When we were in single digits for a hot second, I talked about the Onabu Geisha, deadly women samurai who defended their homes and shamed the men they defeated with their womanhood. Yes, I loved them so much. One of my favorite stories. It was actually the first story I think I covered where I was like, I don't even know how to do this because I was going to cover like the the concept of the Onabu Geisha, but it wasn't like a linear thing. Yeah. And it was very difficult, but it was good. Seriously, listen to that episode if you haven't already. If not for the Onobu Geisha, but for my fixation on a severed penis. Because that was the episode also where Kelly covered Paulina Luisi. Oh, that's right. Who, in response to a male classmate being a dick in, like, anatomy class, she, like, threw a cadaver penis in his bag. Yeah, I think it was in his his bag or in his pocket or something. Yeah, and Kelly's like, and then she did all this feminist education stuff. I was like, no, 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 no. I'm not ready for that. Tell me more about the penis because I cannot wrap my head around it. It was so fucked up. Yeah, it was. I thought it was hilarious. I'm like, yep, that's my kind of woman. Well, today I am going back to Japan to talk about another group of female warriors led by one woman, Chiyome Mochizuki. So Chiyome was born sometime in the 16th century in Japan. This is also known as the feudal area era, not area era <laughs> the feudal medieval area. japan yeah it's, it's just that one area that's feudal everything else is skyscrapers and fast tracks and it's just this one area where they cook their food over the fire and fight with swords and do all that stuff and like honestly hearing feudal japan just conjures up images of inuyasha yeah and that's all i can imagine and i'm not super wrong in that though <laughs> So like many women from this far back, we don't know much about Chiyome from before she became associated with a man. In this case, it was her husband, Moritoki Mochizuki. So Moritoki was a samurai lord of the Saku district in the Shinano province. So this is kind of like in the central area of Japan, like smack dab in the middle. What we do know about Chiyome is that she was a descendant of 15th century ninja Izuma no Kami Mochizuki. Interestingly enough, Moritoki, Chiyome's husband, was also distantly related to Izumo no Kami. Okay. So, like... Distant relatives. You know, the best relationships start when you have something in common. In this case, it was like a distant uncle or something. (laughs) So, I may have talked about this in episode 7, but since that was 10 million years ago, here's a refresher of the feudal Japan class system because it is important. 
So at the top of the triangle or pyramid or whatever we want to call it, we have the emperor who doesn't actually have any political power at this time and was basically a figurehead and revered as like a godlike figure. So he was kind of like maybe a spiritual leader versus having any legit power. Okay, that makes sense. And next we have the Shogun, who did have the power and ruled over different territories. And they had the final say on everything. Third, we have the Daimyo. So the Daimyo are powerful warlords, but still subject to the Shogun's wishes. So the Daimyo couldn't even marry without a Shogun's permission. Also, when property, roads, and castles were damaged, whether it was from natural causes or warfare, the daimyo were required to pay for repairs as a way from preventing them from becoming too wealthy. So they're like kind of getting financially kneecapped by the shogun above them because if the daimyo are more powerful than the shogun financially, then that's going to lead to some power imbalance. Interesting. The plus side was that the daimyo were awarded land to further their military service. So the shoguns were usually the leaders of a specific clan. And then the daimyo were part of that clan. They were like the next step down. And like when I was reading this, I was like the shogun daimyo relationship is kind of like the regional manager is the shogun. And then the daimyo are the assistants to the regional manager. So the shogun are Michael Scott. And then fuck, what is his name? What is the dude's name from the office? Oh, God. I can't think of his name either. Oh, da, 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 da. Because of the D. Dwight? Hold on. I got to look this up. Dwight. Dwight Dwight? Schrute. Yes. Dwight Schrute. Oh, my God. I am embarrassed. Everyone hates me now. If I don't know who Dwight Schrute is, I'm not worthy. Of anything. Yes. No. Just end it now. So finally, under the daimyo, we have the samurai. The samurai were elite honorable warriors who served the daimyo in security enforcement and doling out justice. So the samurai were kind of like the, the, almost like the soldiers. And so they were sent out to do specific tasks and missions and stuff. Okay. So Chiyome's husband, Moritoki, was serving under the daimyo Shinjin Takeda, leader of the Takeda clan, who was also Moritoki's uncle. So when Moritoki died in battle, Chiyome fell under the daimyo's care. And that sounds really gross. Like, I can think of a trillion ways that a woman falling under the care of her dead husband's uncle boss could go horribly wrong. But in the twist of the 16th century, this went very right. (laughs) Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. You see, the daimyo had a vision. He wanted a fully trained fleet of female operatives to be spies and deliver secret coded messages undetected. I suspect he wanted them to be female because a woman would be less suspicious in a world of male warriors. Right. Chiyome came from a long line of ninja, so the daimyo tasked her with the mission of assembling the all-female ninja force. So in our last episode, we talked about, like, uh, vigilante feminist crime-fighting groups cleaning up the streets of the world, and this is, like, the espionage version of that. Now, the word ninja conjures up one of two images. One, a person clad in a black outfit and face mask with only their eyes exposed, usually wielding a katana or throwing stars. Or two, Naruto. (laughs) There's only two acceptable versions of ninja. (laughs) But both of these are inaccurate. Spoiler alert, if you weren't aware. 
My the first entire is- life is now ruined that you said that. I just, I can't. I, I have ruined the days of a million weebs. <laughs> it's like a million weebs cried out and were silenced. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> So the first description of, like, the all-black clad super ninja actually originates from period art, which depicted ninjas in these outfits as an artistic device to convey invisibility. So it wasn't like, hey, this is what ninjas actually dressed like. It's basically, they're invisible, and I'm going to convey that by dressing them all in black and making them look sneaky. This look was also used in kabuki theater, which incorporated highly stylized costumes and makeup. So stagehands, much like today, would wear all black outfits to sneak across the stage to swap out props and stage settings. And even today, you know, you see the set people in the dark and see them moving around. But, you know, it's it's part of theater. It's the suspension of disbelief. Yeah, you're just like, nope, I don't I don't see them. I'm pretending not to see them. Right. So audiences were aware of the stagehands and them moving around. So as a plot twist, one director decided to make one of the stagehands a secret assassin who was part of the story, which shocked audiences. So they think this dude's coming out to like pick up a bush and he whips out a knife and stabs an actor and they're all like, whoa, mind blown. M. Night Shyamalan, what? (laughs) Oh, don't do that when I'm drinking. (laughs) That was good. Are you okay? (laughs) Yes. I didn't spit take onto my mic. It's fine. Yeah. So this shocked audiences. And uh, this was the original Bruce Willis was the dead the whole time plot twist. But because of this, this whole kind of theatrical costume of the ninja became more popular. And we can thank Hollywood for its persistence as the typical ninja look. In fact, this outfit would be completely contradictory to a ninja's real mission, which was to blend in. So ninjas like modern-day spies and secret agents would wear what everyone else wore. Plain clothes, not overly flashy usually. They would sometimes masquerade as monks or even performers as these people would have an excuse to be traveling around the country. So kind of going back to that class system, under the ninjas were peasant farmers and artisans and merchants. And especially peasant farmers, they didn't travel you know, they, they weren't going to go on vacation to another village. They stayed close at home because that's what their livelihood was. And travel could be dangerous and arduous and you got to have the resources for it. It's a whole to do. If you think the airport is bad, you don't even know. Try being a ninja traveling. Yeah. So basically masquerading as uh, monks and performers gave them an excuse to be traveling. It's like, I haven't seen you around these parts. Well, I'm just here to put on a kabuki show. So back off. Screw you! (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This also helped them when crossing borders. No one wants to hassle the kindly monk who's just trying to monk it up. And the robes of typical monks also help them to conceal weapons. Monk it up. Because remember, pockets are a right, not a privilege. Yeah. So weapons could include a katana, which was a common weapon in feudal Japan, not just for ninjas. The kusurigama, which were basically these small handheld sickles. And this was similar to the sickles that farmer used at the time, making it easy for a ninja to explain why they were carrying them around. They also did use kunai, which are those little um, throwing dagger things. 
which could be used for combat or to carve footholds into walls if they were trying to scale a wall into a castle or something. Wow. The kunai was actually a multi-purpose tool often used for as like a gardening trowel. So again, it would be very easy for a ninja to explain why they had one because it wasn't seen as a straight up weapon, even if it could be used that way. Nah, I'm just going to the community garden. Chill yeah. the fuck out. Yeah. It's uh, it, it's kind of like carrying around a little shovel and then using it to kill someone. But it's like, hey, I just have a shovel because I'm a gardener, so back off. <laughs> a ninja's duties primarily included espionage, assassinations, sneak attacks, and other unconventional forms of warfare. So they were kind of like guerrilla warriors. Yeah. Though these mercenaries were highly trained and effective, they were seen as less honorable than samurai because of their covert ways. You know, when a samurai is engaging in battle, you know what you're getting into, but a ninja can just come out of anywhere. And people are like, that's super effective. So you're cheating. Right. No. <laughs> you're cheating at Bad war. ninja. <laughs> Their popularity began to surge during uh, this particular time when Chiyome is active because of the general unrest. In fact, the, this period in time was called the Sengoku period, which means Age of Warring States, <laughs> and I actually mean, spanned succinct. from 1467 to 1615. Yeah, they, they're calling it like they see it. So long story short, everyone's fighting for control and looking for an edge. Chiyome's daimyo knew that a squad of female ninjas could be his edge. So Chiyome accepted her mission to assemble a ninja team and set up shop in the village of Nezu, where she began searching for candidates. And Chiyome found a rich fountain of recruits in some of the most unexpected places. She recruited sex workers, survivors of civil wars of the Sengoku period, and orphans. Honestly, and it makes sense when you think about it, because these are women who have likely lost everything, they have no families, and they have been groomed by the school of hard knocks, so they're tough as hell because they've had to become that way. Chiyome first taught the female ninja, or kunoichi, the ways of the Miko, a Shinto priestess or shrine maiden. So okay. Miko's often traveled, and like with, the, like with the monk example, so this was a great excuse for them to be crossing in and out of enemy territory. Amiko's traditional attire, a red hakama, which are like super baggy pants, and a okay. white kimono top with long baggy sleeves also so, served to help them conceal messages or weapons. Like, does Kagome wear? I mean, like Inuyasha basically wears. I, my next line is literally for anyone who is confused, Google Kikyo from Inuyasha, oh, Kikyo. and that's yeah. it. I was like, one of the characters of Inuyasha wears that. Yeah, because Kiki, Kikyo's a... a, a a priestess. Yep. So that's her uniform. The Miko disguises provide proved to be an effective tool, and over time, Chiyome also taught the women to masquerade as actresses, sex workers, or geishas to easily gain access to their targets. Yeah. So, like, I, I imagine with, like, the sex workers and the geishas, it was kind of this whole, like, seductress, and then you think you're about to get laid, but you get stabbed. <laughs> that sounds terrible. I... Worst date night ever, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to get some. Oh, God, I'm dead. I showered for this. <laughs> hey, but if you're the woman, you don't even have to shave your legs. You don't even have to worry about it. He's going to yeah, be dead exactly. before anything happens. <laughs> so, herstory fun fact. Female ninjas were probably just called ninjas instead of kunoichi. Uh, this was... There was mention of kunoichi no jitsu, which was just a strategy for using women as ninja for the obvious reasons we've already discussed. Yeah. 
But female ninjas being referred to as kunoichi is more of a modern invention. And when I say modern, I mean like 1964 modern. Wow. And so it's become more popular, especially in anime and stuff. Female ninjas are commonly referred to as kunoichi. But back then, you were just a ninja. Right. Which I think is kind of cool. Like, why gender it? I just... Oh, I watched I watched some like video on Facebook about like somebody wanting to be a female gamer and they meet a female gamer and the female gamer goes, it's not female gamer. It's just gamer. Like, why do we need a different title? And then like later in that same episode, the mom's talking to the daughter and she's like, oh, you know what? You're right. You can be a female gamer. And then the daughter repeats that like it's just gamer. And I'm like, that's so true. We're all learning and growing and it's beautiful. Like, yeah, why do things need to be like, you know, you don't say male gamer. So why why does it need to, or like boy gamer? Like, so why do you need to differentiate the women? We're all just gamers. Exactly. It's fine. Exactly. Why qualify it? So all activity and intelligence was reported back to the daimyo, which meant he was always one step ahead of his enemies. Eventually, Chiyome had a network of 200 to 300 agents, a testament to her... To the success of her and her ninja. Unfortunately, just as Chiyome was escorted into the historical record by a man, she would disappear the same way. Her daimyo Shinjin Takeda mysteriously died in 1573, aka was probably murdered or assassinated or something. Yeah. And with his death, Chiyome becomes lost to history. Well, yeah, because especially if people knew she was his ninja, she's like, nope, I'm gone. Well, and there's no point in talking about her because she's not serving a more famous and powerful man. Yeah, exactly. She's not associated with him anymore because he's dead. Damn it, history! (laughs) So, legacy. So, here comes everyone's least favorite part of the stories, it seems, that I always tell. Chiyomi's existence is still disputed to this day. Of course. Wah, wah. It's alleged that the first mention of Chiyome's name is in a 1971 book called Investigation of Japanese History by Shisei Inagaki, who is a non-academic writer. Katsuya Yoshimaru, an associate professor at Mie University who studies ninja, claims that Inagaki's book is totally inaccurate and that's likely Chiyome didn't exist at all. Her story headcanon, she totes did. Yeah. So Chiyome's name and story didn't gain widespread attention until a two-page article about her was published in History Reader magazine in 1991. And I just want to point out, my notes alone are four pages. Right? Like, do some research. Jesus. Them, not you. If two pages rocketed her into public consciousness, my four pages makes her a real human being. (laughs) Whether she existed or not, Chiyome has become a popular figure in pop culture, featured in a ton of video games, including Assassin's Creed Memories, Pokemon Conquest, and Marvel Avengers Alliance, where she's not like her own character, but rather elite Kunoichi enemies in the game are called Chiyome. So there's like 20,000 of her. (laughs) That's funny. She's usually depicted in a full or partial Miko uniform in recognition to her ninja's origins. For those of you who enjoy young adult fiction or have kids who do, Chiyome is a major character in Risuko Ekunoichi Tale by David Kudler. So that's cool. I wouldn't mind reading it. I I still get a kick out of young adult stuff. 
Whether Chiome was real or not, we do know that women acted as ninjas and employed many of the techniques we discussed. A combination of skill and non-threatening womanliness made them effective spies. We see how modern spies still use these tactics, including weaponizing sexist assumptions about women's gentility. And with the power vested in me by this wine and podcast, I hereby grant Chiome the herstory stamp of approval. Yeah. Done. But yeah, that's like Chiome, the mother of the ninjas. That's really cool. I like that. Mother of ninjas. Yeah. So that was a really fun story to cover. I had such a kick. I got such a kick out of it. I'm glad. It sounds like it would be fun to research. Yeah. It w- it was cool to get into like the the feudal class system and just what it meant to be a ninja at the time. So I liked getting to use her story as a vehicle for getting more into that. Yeah, that's cool. Welcome to Pineapple Pizza Podcast, where we serve up delicious slices of mythology, cryptozoology, and urban legends. Ashley is the MythBuster. Tiresias is finally just like it was you, Kay. <laughs> <laughs> Emily is the cryptid hunter. And it's this guy that's bending over and farting into the face of this absolutely horrified Kappa. The Kappa's like, no! <laughs> and Lindsay is the storyteller. Am I pretty? I think I'm a snack. <laughs> She'd be like, what's a snack? Do you have candy? Pineapple Pizza Podcast. Stop on by for a slice, a story, and a laugh. Coming January 2021. All right, Kelly, who are you whining about today? I am whining about Millicent Patrick. Millicent Patrick. Millicent Patrick. I like that name. I know, right? But she was born Mildred Elizabeth Fulvia de Rossi. She shortened it a little. She'll make you say it. (laughs) So she was born in 1915. Um, Not much is known about the first few years of her life, but when she was six, her father, Camille Charles Rossi, who was a structural engineer, was hired to work on William Randolph Hearst's California Central Coastal Retreat, which is known as La Suesta Encantada, which is like this big, it's also known as Hearst's Castle. Oh, In California. He became, her her dad, became the project's construction superintendent, reporting only to Julia Morgan, who we're deaf going to have to cover later because she was California's first licensed woman architecture, and she designed the castle for Hearst. Oh, shit. Hold on. I'm Googling a picture of Hearst Castle right now, and it is bananas. It is. It is bananas. Oh, my God. It's, It's so much. Right? It's too so it much. Says, <laughs> I can't. Like other children whose parents labored there, Mildred would all often frequently visit this dreamland. It had two thousand. It had a two thousand acre private zoo, constantly shifting human menagerie of guests, including many celebrities. Um, however, her father was kind of an uneasy guest in Hearst's castle. He fought a lot with uh, Julia and was dismissed a decade into his service. In her in her diary, Julia called him, quote, unduly revengeful. And the superintendent called said that Rossi, quote, seemed to glory in human misery. He just sounds like a fun guy to get a drink with. <laughs> yeah. So that was her dad. 
And then, and years la- years later, Millicent spoke about or with an estate historian about the estate and growing up there. She talked a lot about the swimming pools, how there were French pastry chefs, there were pet leopards and lions. Um, she recalled Hearst as being an enormous and frightening man who threw lavish parties with movie stars. And she said she changed her name to Millicent, which was her wife's name, spelled slightly differently, because of like all of that. Honestly, that sounds like the coolest childhood. Right. You're basically growing up. And seriously, everyone, take two seconds and Google Hearst Castle because you need to see the shit to believe it. Imagine yeah. growing up there, even in progress, like, or totally even in periphery, insane. you know, like, because technically yeah. was just building it, but still, like, Jesus. Oh, that, I mean, it sounds like her dad had some issues. It sounds like maybe Mr. Hearst was, had some issues, but like, I would just stay out of their way and go swimming all the time. That yeah, sounds right? amazing. God. A gifted artist, Mildred received three scholarships to Cunard University, which is an art university, um, which served as an artist slash animator incubator for nearby Walt Disney. I wonder if Cunard University is named after anyone in Nancy Cunard's family. Because remember the Cunard yeah. shipping line? They yeah, were maybe. a big name. The school would later go on to become Cal Arts, which I think is what it's still known now. However, when she was in school, she was tapped to work at for Disney's storied ink and paint department. So for those who don't know, at this time, in the 1930s, 1940s, Disney's ink and paint department was entirely staffed by women. They were housed in a separate studio on the Disney campus to keep them like apart from the animators who were all men. And they would go on these. They called them the ink and paint girls because, you know, creative. And they would go on to (laughs) reproduce tens of thousands of animators drawings on celluloid, which was absolute like it's super intensive like it's it's a very laborious like work like you're hand doing all of these is that when they had it was like it was like a clear almost sheet of paper and you layered it and then you would like flip it back to make sure the animation Yeah, but you have to like draw the animation on it and then yeah then do that for each individual little thing the fact that anyone had the amount of dedication to try animation blows my mind that everyone's right? like man this is long and tedious and awful and i'm going to make it a thing <laughs> yeah uh so prajisha zahn who was an ink and paint girl back in the day uh wrote in an article quote their job was to make what the men did or no maybe maybe she's just an article writer i don't know but she said their job was to make what the men did look good at an average of eight to ten cells an hour a hundred girls could only in theory turn out less than one minute of screen time by the end of the day. Oh, my God. That's how much work this was. And it was all these women behind the scene doing it. Yeah, and they're getting none of the credit. No. They're they're like the, uh, the line workers, almost. Exactly. They're the manufacturers of the animation. Exactly. There's some really interesting stories about, like, the ink and paint, like... It's it's something that if you would have interest in that kind of thing, you could you could look into. It's really interesting. So in Hollywood, like while she was doing this, she got a few forgettable bit parts. You know, she was in an Abbott and Costello flick where she was the dark haired beauty. She worked in the TV uh, Raymar in the Jungle, where she played quote white goddess of an African tribe welcoming outsiders in stilted English. God, that sounds fun. Oh, that just sounds all kinds of racist. (laughs) But 
like I said, she was drawing for Disney and they said, so when you, this is what somebody says in particular, when you look at the Takata and Fugue sequence, it is a really abstract impressionist suggestion of musical tones. That's what Mindy Johnson, who's an instructor at the California Institute of Arts says. And they're, they're talking about Fantasia because she worked on Fantasia. So there's a sequence in Fantasia oh. called Takata and Fugue. And she did that. And then Johnson also says when Mildred, Mildred Rossi, which is what she was known at Disney, she also worked on A Night on Bald Mountain where Chernabog <gasps> is perched atop the mountain. And it says, Walt wanted this creature of darkness to be defeated by light. As the dawn bell tolls, you see this blue pastel reflection of light cross the body of Chernabog. And it's powerful and it's actually interestingly... Millicent's first monster. So she did that like light piece of Chernabog on at, on in Fantasia. So I used to have the Fantasia VHS tape as a kid. I did too. And it's one of those ones that I grew up with and don't remember the first time I watched it. But I had this thing where I would always stop it before the night on Bald Mountain piece because it's scary. It's, it scared me. It was the last thing. It scared the absolute hell out of me. And then. In one instance, I either decided to watch it or forgot to rewind it in time and was kind of like, let's see how this plays out. And I remember thinking, why have I been avoiding this? This is the coolest shit I have ever seen in my life. This puts the Pegasus and the horse girls and the dinosaurs to shame. Although the dinosaurs were totally my favorite. Right. But like, it's so... Incredible. Okay, we're gonna take a I was break. I'm gonna go of, watch like, Fantasia, and then I was we will a fan come back. Of the dancing hippo, like the ballerina hippo. <gasps> oh, and hippo. then the crocodiles. Yeah, yeah, that was a good one. And then the little mushrooms. So Mildred left Disney in in the wake of the 1941 animators walkout, a strike that would irrevocably change Disney, the face of Disney for a long time. She wasn't among the strikers. What had happened was actually at some point while she was at Disney, she had an affair with one of the Disney animators named Paul Fitzpatrick, who was married at the time. And his pregnant wife found out and killed herself and their unborn child. Oh, my God. The tragedy left them. The tragedy left them free to marry, um, but also a strange. Please tell me they didn't. Um, but also estranged Mildred from their family. They did get married, and a few years later, they divorced. And she would take, she would keep his last name and go on to be Mildred Patrick. Still, yep. Uh, I I want to get behind Millicent, but that's like Fifty Shades yep. of Gross. I hate yep. all of that. I really hope Those there was like. I really sentences. hope they waited a while because I mean, how does that not just ruin your relationship? Like, I wouldn't want to be with oh. that person. I wouldn't be able to look at them. Like, okay, first of all, to yeah, have an affair with a married person, like, I I couldn't even get past that. Like, ew, you're gross, fuck off. But then after such a tragic aftermath, I would I would move, I would change my name, I would Yeah. Ugh. That's awful. So she claimed to be Disney's first female animator. That's probably not true, but it was like she was one of the first. Mm -hmm. And she would actually go on to further embolden her background and say that she was an Italian baroness. And she did like (laughs) she was gorgeous and she loved to be glamorous. So she looked the part of an Italian baroness like... Yeah, I I Googled a picture of her and she kind of looks like a pinup model, like very old Hollywood. Like she could definitely say she was an Italian baroness and I would be like, yeah, I can see that. (laughs) Very glamorous. 
So though she was no longer working at Disney, she did continue to create art and uh, do illustrations and, you know, stuff like that. But she was mostly working as a model during this time. For obvious reasons. She's stunning. Right? In 1947, however, she met William Hawks, who was the brother of filmmaker Howard Hawks and also a producer. She started getting some more uncredited bits, you know, water nymph, flashy woman, tavern wench, you know, those ones. Hot chick. (laughs) Exactly. She became involved with actor Frank Graham, who is best known for voicing the wolf in Tex Avery's cartoon, Red Hot Riding Hood. Oh, where his uh, eyes jump out from his head yeah, I think, and he does yeah, like, I think oh, so. oh, okay. Yeah. Um, a few months into their relationship, Graham committed suicide. God, this woman just has. Oh, no. Yeah. His will contained a note that read, to Mildred, I leave nothing except the pleasure she will have knowing that now she won't have to decide whether I am good enough for her or not. He also oh. wrote a postscript saying, gee, I wish Mildred had called me back yesterday morning. I w- okay. What a cheap parting shot that last one is. I was going to say I've I've always really hated like the whole like I'm going to blame everyone for this in my note and like get the last word thing. Like I I'm very empathetic to people who struggle with suicidal ideations and urges, but that always sits poorly with me, you know. Yeah. Because it, it feels like you're weaponizing a tragedy to hurt someone else. And I just, I do not like yeah, that. Right. So after that, uh, Millicent moved to Universal Studios to start designing special effects makeup and monsters. Her most famous monster being the creature from the Black Lagoon. Omira, oh, no who did, way! Yeah. Omira, who did a biography on her, says at the time, Universal's publicity department. Oh, no. Hold on. We'll come back to that. Um, so her, vo- her boss at the Universal Monster Shop was a man named Bud Westmore. So yeah, they were going to send her on a promotional tour called the-, the Beauty Who Created the Beast, like after she had worked on this. And Bud said, I don't want it to be the Beauty Who Created the Beast. We're going to rebrand it and it'll be the Beauty Who Lives with the Beast. He said, okay, we'll do this tour. We'll send you all around the country, but you have to tell people I designed it. You cannot take credit for it. Apparently, oh, wait, Bud what West- the fuck? Bud Westmore is known to be hard to work with, and he was really jealous of all of her attention. Other people who worked on the movie, including one of the people that sculpted the mask, say say unequivocally that Patrick did design the creature. You know, it's graceful, elegant, and a surprisingly sexy monster who would actually go on to... If if you've heard of Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water from 2017, yeah. like it's based on that. I was going to say the OG creature from the Black Lagoon was a little sexy. And then Guillermo del Toro was like, I'm going to make this guy a sex symbol. Right. So <laughs> she went on. The, so she did all the drawings, you know, and whatever. And then she went on this tour. And when she came back, they fired her. Oh, or fuck Bud, them. Bud Westmore fired her. She was she she didn't get any credit for the, you know, the monster. And she never worked behind the scenes in Hollywood again. What an insecure prick. Right. And a lot of people were like, well, you know, maybe that's not true. You know, maybe something else happened. But there were uh, Universal Studios memos found in the archives of the USC Cinematic Arts Library about Universal declining to comment to NPR about not acknowledging its first female monster designer. But the director at the Westmore Museum, so Bud Westmore, it's his museum, 
like they did say that yeah he supervised a woman who created the creature but they did say it was common as him being the studio's like head of the makeup department it was common that he was credited and not her but i'm still like mm, if they fired then her why would the movie, yeah, yeah but they fired her and it's not even just, hey, you're doing good work for us, but you're not going to get credit. It's you're overshadowing me and my ego, and I just can't have that. Yeah, right. So Doug Jones, who played the man in the sh- who played the monster in the shape of water, said, having played so many creatures over so many years, I can tell you that it takes a village to make a monster. He said that the crews of artists rarely get accolades. And then he said, designers and creature creators and makeup artists are, you know, it's a tight circle of people. Legacies have been passed down from one generation to the next. And so for her name to have never come up until now is a travesty. Oh, Doug. Right. It was cute. He knows. (laughs) So what you're saying is that Bud West, whatever his name is, is the real monster. Yeah, right. <laughs> so after that, she would kind of just go on to live a society life. She would marry for a third time to Sid Beaumont, who would die of cancer. Oh, thank God. I thought he was also going to complete suicide and I was just going to get really bummed out. Right. In 1955, she met Lee Trent. Um, They had a really tumultuous relationship marked by canceled engagements and public fighting eventually they did marry in a las vegas wedding chapel in 16 or 1963 but then filed for divorce (laughs) in 1969 but continued to have an on and off relationship for years afterwards you know kind of like he was like the one she always went back to kind of a thing yeah even though they weren't good together right she would go on to develop Parkinson's disease in 1988 and breast cancer oh. thereafter. Oh, my God. She, she died in 1998 at a hospice care center in Roseville. However, there have been some claims that she didn't die at the age of 82 in 1998. And apparently the Screen Actors Guild currently lists her as missing with no definitive record of her life or death appearing to exist beyond the early 1980s what yep so what i don't even so, know so, how i begin to wrap my head I know, around that i know i found like it was in like one article that they were like oh by the way the screen actors guild says that she's missing not dead and i'm like wait what i didn't even know the screen actors guild like kept record like that like you Apparently could go missing as an act that's crazy that's creepy i hate that so I mean, we don't know where she's buried then she... if we don't know she's dead. I mean, supposedly she died in a hospice care center. So you'd think like they would have records. Yeah. Man, if they were able to find find those old memos from when That's she created good, yeah. the Beast of the Black or Monster of the Creature. Jesus Christ. Creature, creature of the Black, Black Lagoon. Lagoon. Um, so that Omira You think they'd be able to find her death record. Uh, Omira that I mentioned, she wrote she's kind of who brought Millicent Patrick back into the spotlight recently um, because she wrote a book called like the lady behind the creature from the Black Lagoon or something. hold on I'm trying to copy and paste and my computer's being stupid which I read an article about the book and some of my information is from that like it's it's been a lot of people say it's fine but they say it's more geared toward like younger people as it like goes into a lot of explanation about you know, like what? So her name is uh, Mallory o- O'Meara, and it's the lady from the Black Lagoon is the name of the book. 
and it's kind of about her life, but like it doesn't talk a lot beyond like what I talked about apparently and it's a lot of yeah like explaining terms and you know so it's it's not as in-depth as a lot of people wanted it to be especially since the author talks about receiving stuff from uh the artist's niece but then never actually like says what she received from the niece oh okay so it's kind of like she she put Millicent back into the spotlight but really didn't give us the information we wanted exactly like okay and it's great that she did that but yeah it's like it kind of sucks that it wasn't great you know it wasn't more in depth what most of us would have hoped for you know yeah because i was gonna say i'm not saying don't read it i'm just saying it's not gonna be like super in depth if that's what you're looking for um but you were saying how it explains a lot of things and all that and uh sounds like it's geared more towards like younger audiences yeah and I, we never want to discount those kinds of books. Kelly and I no. don't do that. Like uh, Catherine Atwood's books, who we've returned to on multiple occasions, are geared towards a younger audience to make them more accessible. But here's the thing. How many of yep. us in our 20s, 30s, 40s and beyond understand all the context behind some of these complicated things or a place or a period of time or even a profession? And so explaining something clearly... Like, I, I hate how people kind of put that as, well, it's probably for more younger readers. It's like, right. maybe not, it sounds like it's not more for younger readers, but maybe people who aren't like academics in this area yeah. and need some hand-holding. Because I know I do when I'm reading yeah. that stuff. I'm not an expert. <laughs> as the, the article says, the truth is much of the book is padding and it often reads as though it were written for a young audience with pa- a long passage and footnotes explaining who Hearst was, what a scream queen is, and so on. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I'd like to check it out. I'd kind of like to judge that for myself because I feel like people like to get really up on their high horse and really hoity-toity when it comes to historical right, exactly. books. I'm just if saying it's that not that's, some that's what dense- they said about it. But it's still yeah, on my list. It's not to some dense read. academic paper. It's like, oh no. That is so crazy though. I never knew a woman designed the creature from the Black Lagoon. Right? Yeah, there's some really cool pictures of her like working on stuff. I was gonna say I have her pulled up on my Google images, and there's a picture of her with the mask of the creature in the Black Lagoon in her arm, and she's like leaning her head on it, and it's like it's like the picture you would take with your romantic partner, kind of that right? <laughs> I know. There's That's some really cool. good pic- There's a picture of her wearing like the wolfman head from Abbott and Costello's wo- uh, Jekyll and Hyde or like maybe it's not the wolfman head, but it's like the Jekyll and Hyde head from that oh, particular cool. movie. And it's like on the back of her head. So it's like her face. And then it's really cool. I mean, that's yeah, but amazing. she was an absolutely stunning woman. It sounds like she had a really fascinating life. There's a picture of her sitting and she's holding the Gilman mask, the the... Jekyll and Hyde mask and the Frank and a Frankenstein mask. That's cool. That's, yeah, that's I really see cool. that one. And it sounds like she had a really bonkers life. Like personally, right? professionally, it, it doesn't sound like she was a woman who was free of drama at like any point in her life. <laughs> no, but it's kind of what I would expect from someone who grew up at Hearst Castle. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Dramatic and glamorous. Like, she definitely kicked ass and like made her life what she wanted it to be. Yeah. You know, like. Well, that is amazing. Thank you for sharing. Yes, I can hear your dog scratching. (laughs) You're welcome. You're welcome for sharing. So what, Emily, 
What are you thankful for? Um, I'm thankful that I've gotten to spend a little time with family. Jared's stepmother is having some issues with some organ failure. And while she's dealing with this, she's also kind of the full-time babysitter for her two granddaughters, Jared's nieces. Oof. So um, I, I understand we're not supposed to be traveling, but we don't know how this is going to go for her. So we're kind right. of like wanting to get as much time with her as possible. So And I mean, if, decided- if they're the only ones you're seeing, it's not yeah. as bad. Yeah, you know, taking precautions, but we we helped her take care of the girls, the little babies, and got to spend some time with her, and uh, she shared, like, some old family recipes and that kind of thing, so that that was really nice, and uh, there's still a lot of questions, there's still a lot of things up in the air, uh, but we're just trying to take advantage of the time that we have right now, and hoping for the best. Good. Kelly, what are you thankful for? Um, I'm just thankful for all the support I'm getting lately, like school starting again and, you know, there's a lot going on, but it's nice to know that I have people there, you know, for anything if I need them. And it's just been, it's been nice to know that I have that. Well, we, we all support you, Kelly, and I'm going to speak for our listeners because I know they do. Oh, thank you. I can't wait to start buttonholing you for all of my mental health advice (laughs) so i have a question (laughs) (laughs) is it normal to feel this way no emily get help but what about this emily get help (laughs) here's a list of resources for you yeah all right. Well, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Whining About Herstory. Please like us on Facebook at Whining About Herstory, Instagram at WAH Pod, Twitter at WAH underscore pod. Our website is whiningaboutherstory.com. We have an email, whiningaboutherstory at gmail.com, where we would love to hear from you, whether it's recommendations on women, wine, just to say hi, really anything. We would just love to hear from you. We also have a Patreon where you can donate for as little as $1 a month to get some extra content and stuff like that. And we also have a Teespring where if you search Whining About Herstory, you can see our sweet, sweet merch. And then uh, please rate us five stars wherever you listen. One of our merch shirts was actually inspired by a five-star review. So check that out. Yeah. Thank you again so much for listening to Whining About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. And have an empowered day. Bye. Bye.